This is episode 295. Do you work too much? Eat too much? Do your kids play video games too much? Or are you addicted to alcohol, prescription medication, or any number of things that are making your life experience more difficult and depressing? If any of what I've just mentioned is true for you, then this episode is for you because we talk about dopamine, the neurotransmitter that governs all pleasure-seeking behavior and how it's strongly related to the cause of anxiety, depression, and addiction. Understanding dopamine is incredibly useful in understanding yourself and the challenges you have with long-term behavior change. And the good thing is, we also suggest how to go about solving these issues in a really practical sense that you can literally begin today. So, without further ado, let's jump in. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously, so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition, and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? I'm glad that you've picked this episode to tune into as it's going to be one hell of a conversation with today's guest, Anna Lemke. First order of business, though, is that in 2023, it's my mission to coach 500 people to stop the binge eating and savage self-talk cycle so they can lose weight whilst feeling in control and without restriction along the way. And one of the major parts of working on that relationship with food is about changing your relationship with pleasure-seeking behavior, which gives you a hit of dopamine. And conveniently on today's episode, we have the author of the incredible book called Dopamine Nation. I'd like you to meet the amazing Dr. Anna Lemke. She is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She's the author of the more than 100 peer-reviewed publications, has testified before the US Parliament, and has served as an expert witness in federal and state opioid lit- litigation. In 2016, she published the book Drug Dealer MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's Hard to Stop. She also appeared in the Netflix doco called The Social Dilemma, which looks at the impact of social media on our lives, which, as you may have guessed, is mostly not great. And her latest book, Dopamine Nation, Finding Balance in the Age of Indulgence, was an instant New York Times and Los Angeles Times bestseller. And it's amazing. I have it right here with me, and I've read it a bunch of times, and I've listened to it on Audible as well. Uh, And whilst this list of amazingness and accolades could probably go on for another few minutes, I want to get right into this conversation with Anna. So welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me on the show. And thank you for that very lovely introduction. Oh, you're so very welcome. You're such an impressive human. Um, And I've listened to so many of your podcasts on the Huberman Lab and with Tom Bilyeu and all of these amazing humans. And yeah, your work is incredible. Um, And I think maybe a good place to start for listeners is what exactly is dopamine? Great place to start. Dopamine is a chemical that we make in our brain. It is in the class of chemicals called neurotransmitters. Neurotransmitters are molecules that bridge the gap between neurons. Neurons are the long spindly cells that act like electrical wires that make up the circuits in our brains. So, and neurons don't touch end to end. There's a little space between them. That space is called the synapse and neurotransmitters uh, allow for fine tuning of those circuits. So dopamine has multiple important functions in the brain. But one of its most important functions is that it's essential for the experience of pleasure, reward, and motivation. It's also from more broadly, from a sort of uh, evolutionary perspective, it's the neurotransmitter that tells us this is something that you need to pay attention to because it's fundamental for your survival. 
which is key because that means dopamine can be released not just in response to pleasurable stimuli, but also in response to anything that's novel or new or exciting or even potentially aversive stimuli that might be uh, impactful for survival. Intoxicants release a whole lot of dopamine all at once in that dedicated part of the reward pathway. And our brain's attempts to compensate for that sudden influx of dopamine essentially leads to the disease of addiction, which is characterized by a particular type of compensatory brain mechanism. Right. Thank you. Uh, and so when, you, when we talk about these stimulants that we go towards, we're talking about anything that feels good, like food, porn, sex, drugs, the whole lot, anything that feels good, right? Yeah. I mean, pretty much anything that feels good or that, that gives us that kind of positive glow will be mediated to some extent by dopamine. What's key is how much dopamine is released, how fast it's released, and in what part of the brain it's released. And again, what's unique about things that are tend to be addictive, kind of universally addictive, are things that release a lot more dopamine all at once in the reward circuitry than our brains were really evolved to handle. And that's where we get into trouble. Yeah, it's one of the conversations that pops up a lot, I guess, in this you know addiction space and um, pleasure-seeking behavior space is that we never seemingly so far we've never developed a mechanism biologically to for us to be able to easily get in the way of that dopamine pleasure seeking behavior which is why it's so easy to get addicted to you know video games and all of these types of things why do you think we didn't evolve to have that mechanism yeah great question and the answer is that human beings evolved in a world of scarcity and ever present danger where just to survive, we had to make sure that we were constantly seeking that next reward, food, clothing, shelter, finding a mate. And so the brain evolved a mechanism that made sure that whenever we found what little rewards we, we could find, uh, they didn't last long, right? So pleasure mm -hmm. is something that's fleeting. It's innately fleeting. And we are reflexively designed at our most primitive, reflexive brain level, the level of the lizard brain to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And frankly, that is what has kept us alive, you know, through the millions of years of evolution. The problem is that we now have created a world which is very different from the world that we evolved for and which is essentially makes this kind of pleasure pain mechanism a liability. Yeah. I'm curious as to your, so that's sort of looking at the past of evolution. I'm curious about your predictions for the future of evolution. Are we... Are we in a situation where, you know, the Western world particularly is so attached, let's say, and addicted to so many things, whether it be our phones, social media, you know, all the things that we mentioned before, do you think that we're going to figure out how to adapt to this? Or do you think that all of the lines of addictive personalities and genomes are going to fall by the wayside and the only people that are going to evolve and take us forward are people that have mastered stoicism? <laughs> yeah, right. Great question. So I'm generally an optimist when it comes to human beings. I think we're amazingly adaptable and I think we're going to figure it out. And believe it or not, I think it's the people who are most susceptible to the problem of addiction uh, that might be the ones who show us the way. So people in recovery from severe addictions are like modern day prophets for the rest of us. If they've been able to figure out 
you know, how to survive in this dopamine overloaded world, then they have a lot of wisdom for the rest of us. Having said that, I do think that addiction in its many guises will be and is the modern plague. So I think we are going to struggle and suffer and a lot of lives are going to be lost between now and however many hundreds of years it takes for us to get a better handle on how to live in a world of abundance, because it looks like that is the world that we're headed toward. Machines do our work, leaving us more leisure time, leaving us more disposable income. Our food production system means that everybody has plenty to eat and then some. You know, we've got uh, all of these entertaining things that we can distract ourselves and amuse ourselves with. An amazing worldwide supply chain that delivers them to our doorstep or to our fingertips, for that matter, yeah. um, instantly. You know, this is going to be a really, this is a challenging situation because we are genuinely not evolved for this. But I think we're going to figure it out. It's going to take a while, though. I often joke that the next step for Amazon is to actually put the food in your mouth. <laughs> right. We're probably not too far from that. We're going to start licking our screens. <laughs> totally, totally. Um, I'm curious with. With that future of figuring it out, do you think that it can be done or do you have hope that it can be done without the aid of pharmaceuticals? Do you think we can get to a state of natural management of this or do you think it's going to be something that needs to always be supported by medication? Oh, I mean, it's already happening without the, the aid of pharmaceuticals and it's called Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous and any other kind of intervention that you know has been shown to work. These are you know, in a huge investment of time, energy, creativity, just mental cogitation, but it's happening all around us. Millions of people are in recovery from very severe addictions and have done it without. Having said that, I'm really grateful that there are medicines to help people, as well as, you know, now we're seeing surgical interventions, right? We're seeing bypass surgeries, we're, uh, we're seeing new medications like Ozempic and Wagovi. So I'm not, I'm not promoting these medicines or these interventions. What I'm saying is that Wherever you look, humans are desperately looking for ways to adapt to a world of abundance, of overwhelming overabundance. So, you know, I'm, I'm a pragmatist. If it works, great. Yeah, I'm probably pretty similar in that perspective. And, and I think it's interesting too in this modern world, and this is interestingly a conversation that I had with my own psychologist mm -hmm. about the idea of psychic boundaries versus physical boundaries and that he was sort of challenging me. We're talking about procrastination and, you know, how easy it is sort of running your own, you know, business and thing from home. It's so easy. There's, you know, Netflix is just over there and the food's just over there. And we were talking about putting physical boundaries in place. But the reality is that until I've developed the psychic muscle to make a choice not mm. to engage rather than be limited by physicality, only then have I mastered that sort of relationship, you know, managing that dopamine seeking behavior in that moment. How does that differ for say, you know, I guess whatever we sort of classify as an ordinary person versus somebody that has a more addictive pleasure seeking behavior? Are those physical boundaries necessary as a precursor to developing the psychic boundaries? Or is it better to start focusing one's attention on that psychic boundary? Hmm. Okay. So really interesting question. I would start by saying that we are much, much more vulnerable to our environment than we realize. So often we like to locate psychiatric problems and maladaptive coping to an individual brain or a weakness in that brain or in that individual's resolve or however you want to characterize it. But the truth is we're incredibly 
social, susceptible creatures, and we will do what people around us are doing and what our environment is set up for us to do. And we live in a capitalistic, consumeristic environment where we're essentially told if we're experiencing any discomfort, we should immediately consume something to make ourselves feel better. Almost impossible uh, for most of us to manage our consumption in an environment like that without creating a micro environment or a world within a world where we create some kind of boundaries between ourselves and all of the products that are constantly inviting us. So I, I guess in that sense, I don't agree, you know, with your your counselor. Um, but on the other hand, you know, I think there's a, a different levels of recovery from compulsive overconsumption. And it's certainly true that people mature in their recovery. So, you know, we often talk about early recovery, which usually constitutes somewhere between the first month and the first year of trying to abstain or moderate a substance or behavior. Those folks are in early recovery. Their neural circuits are in the baby stages, the neural circuits of trying to create other coping strategies, other ways of, you know, recreating, other ways of problem solving. And their original maladaptive addictive circuits are still quite robust. But over time, as we sort of leach those addiction circuits of oxygen by not engaging in those substances and behaviors and create new, healthier coping strategies, we eventually eventually get to a point, which we, you know, we call more sustained recovery or the maintenance phase, where people have recaptured their ability to choose to use or not to use, even in a potentially, you know, stressful or challenging environment. In that recapturing, is that is that a moment where they then integrate their choices or reintegrate their choices with their new identity? I think identity is a lot of it. So for example, you know, when people qualitative studies of things like Alcoholics Anonymous talk about this shift in identity, uh, introducing yourself as an addict alcoholic, conceptualizing uh, yourself as having an allergy uh, to that substance as being not a normie, not like other people. So that's just one example of an identity shift. There are other ways to shift that identity. It might be as somebody who doesn't have agency to somebody who does have agency. You know, there are many, many ways to create identity and recovery. And I do think that's really fundamental. Sometimes it comes in people wanting to live more meaningfully and according to their values. And so that's an identity shift. So yeah, I think I think identity shift is a is an important part of it. Yeah. And I think as well the that classic sort of Tony Robbins or Jim Rohn line that's been going around for possibly centuries, I guess, the average of the five people that you hang around goes back to that idea of the environment and the people people we relate to. And as you know, but anyone that's studied any form of health at all, we do social determinants of health and and the impact of those people around us. And I guess that leads me to ask, when working with people that are really restricted in their ability to change that environment, what is what's sort of the next step? Because um, I speak to a, a lot of people in the food space and the binge eating and you know emotional eating space when it's a conversation around, you know, my mum says this or the mother-in-law hassles me about not eating this or not drinking. You know, it's really difficult to get rid of these people out of my life. Mm. And so my biggest influences are basically some of my biggest challenges. Right. How do you navigate that environment or shift the identity within the tribe that you're scared of being rejected from? Yeah, so true. Really a great question, a great topic. I mean, I, I see this more 
you know, people who develop alcohol addiction who come from heavy drinking families. So nobody mm -hmm. else in the family has had serious consequences necessarily or self-identifies as being alcoholic, but they're all drinking way too much and it's completely embedded into their uh, social gatherings. Really, really tough. You know, I just really validate, yeah, that's hard. That makes your circumstance a lot harder. I don't like encourage people to cut themselves off from the people in their lives, you know, because that's that's not necessarily the right thing either. But on the other hand, you can keep people who have been in your life who are not a great influence. You can keep them in your life and still not hang around with them as much. So I do think, you know, that is still the message. Like, you know, you can love your your parent or your sibling or your spouse or your kid, whatever it is, or this friend group, but you can decide that really you can't spend as much time with that group because in the end, that group is not going to be the best thing for you. And that really is key. I don't believe it's possible to not, you know, to stay in that social milieu and really consistently and for the long term change consumptive behaviors. You've got to get, essentially get out and get a supportive, sober social network. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I'm curious because I know that in the book Dopamine Nation, which for everybody should read because it's fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Is this relationship between the pleasure-seeking behavior but also the pain element of our life experience? Can you describe that balance and why one leads to the other? Because I think understanding, because when we talk about pleasure, we always think about the good outcomes. But as you describe so eloquently in the book, is that the pain balances that out and the deeper the pain gets, you know, and the, the relationship between that sort of seesaw that goes back and forth really dictates how our life experience goes. And so I'd love it if you could talk to that pain pleasure balance. Sure. So to me, one of the exciting findings in neuroscience in the past 75 years is that pleasure and pain are actually co-located in the brain, meaning that the same parts of the brain that process pleasure also process pain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So if you imagine there's like a teeter-totter in a kid's playground, when we're at rest, that balance is level with the ground. When we experience pleasure, it tilts one way. When we experience pain, it tilts in the opposite direction. There are certain rules governing that balance. And the first and most important rule is that the balance wants to remain level or what neuroscientists call homeostasis. So that with any deviation from neutrality, our brains are going to work very hard to level the balance. And they do that in a really unique way. And that is as follows. Imagine that I, I like chocolate. I eat a piece of chocolate that releases dopamine in my brain's reward pathway. My balance tilts to the side of pleasure. No sooner has that happened than my brain is going to adapt to that increased dopamine firing by downregulating dopamine transmission not just to baseline, but actually below baseline because we're always releasing dopamine at a baseline tonic level. That process is called neuroadaptation. And I like to imagine that as these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the gremlins like it on the balance. So they don't get off as soon as I'm level. They stay on until I've tilted an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. That's the come down, the after effect, the hangover, the blue Monday, the craving, which of course then has me reaching for that second piece of chocolate, even before I've necessarily finished the first one. Now, if I wait a moment and I don't have more chocolate, then, you know, the gremlins get the message. They hop off the pain side of the balance and homeostasis is restored. But the temptation while the gremlins are still on the balance to eat another piece of chocolate is very, very strong because remember, 
Rule number one, that balance wants to remain level and wants me to do the work uh, to bring it level again. So that's the first rule of the balance. Now, the second rule of the balance, which explains what happens as we get addicted, is that with repeated exposure to that same or similar reinforcing substance, that initial deviation to pleasure gets weaker and shorter, but that after response gets stronger and longer. In other words, over time, with more exposure to my drug of choice, whatever it may be, the gremlins start to multiply. And pretty soon, if I'm ingesting chocolate over days to weeks to months to years, I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill this whole room. And now they're camped out there, tents and barbecues in tow. When that happens, now I'm entering addicted brain, right? I've changed my hedonic, appetitive, or joy set point. Now I need more of that substance in more potent forms, not to feel good and get pleasure, but just to level the balance and feel normal. And when I'm not using, I'm walking around with a balance tilted to the side of pain, which means I'm experiencing the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance, which are anxiety, irritability, insomnia, depression, and constant cravings for my drug of choice. Hence that narrowing of focus that leads me to obsessively always be thinking about when I'm going to get my next piece of chocolate. So picture this, right? Unlocking your potential, conquering emotional eating, and gaining insights directly from a health and nutrition expert such as myself. That's what we do inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group, which is currently free to join. If you've ever felt trapped by food challenges, struggled with maintaining a healthy lifestyle, or yearned for a community that understands the reasons why you've yo-yo dieted for years, then there's a new chapter waiting to be written. And this is your chance to start writing it by joining us all on Facebook Lives, on engaging posts that push you out of your comfort zone and into growth, and Q&A sessions with me. All of this works as a platform to begin changing your emotional eating problems for good. Oh, and also, as a special gift, you receive my transformative How to Turn Food into Self-Confidence ebook. And that's also for free. I get it. Skepticism might linger. You might think, Maddie, I've heard these ads and I'm not sure. Well, at least a quarter of the members inside the Healthy Mums Collective Facebook group have been paying clients of my emotional eating program at some point over the last three or four years. So if you're not sure, you can post in the group and ask to find out if I'm the real deal or not. It's totally up to you. To join us in the free Healthy Mums Collective and to end your emotional eating and feel good in your own skin and begin that journey, pop down to the show notes below, click the link and breeze through three simple entry questions. Join today and let's embark on a journey of growth and empowerment. The link is in the show notes below. Yeah. Does this describe why we see in sort of more privileged, wealthy countries, maybe a larger degree of the population experiencing anxiety and depression? Because we're putting you know, so many gremlins on the dopamine end. And so the come down is always going to be bigger and bigger every time that we get stuck in the cycle or you know, as, as our life progresses and we go back and forth between these behaviors. Yeah, I mean, it's a hypothesis and it's it's sort of the big idea in Dopamine Nation that maybe the reason that we're seeing increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and decreasing happiness in rich countries all over the world, more so than in, in less rich countries, is precisely because overabundance itself is a stressor. And that by constantly stimulating our dopamine reward pathway with everything from that first hit of our phone and our caffeinated beverage in the morning to our Netflix binge at night and everything in between, what we're doing is we're essentially emitting a fire hose of dopamine in the reward circuitry such that our brains are 
reeling to try to compensate and doing so by essentially down-regulating dopamine transmission to this dopamine deficit state, which is very similar to clinical depression, anxiety, inattention, insomnia. And that maybe really it's, it's less about social dislocation or multi-generational trauma or co-occurring mental illness. And maybe the reason that we're also unhappy is because we're working so hard to avoid being unhappy and we're constantly titillating our brains. It's such a, an irony or a juxtaposition that, yeah, we get access to all of the good things that a wealthy empire provides its people and it's making everybody sad. <laughs> right. It is such a paradox, right, that essentially the world that we've created conspires against us. It reminds me of that Jordan Peterson quote, choose your suffering or the world will choose it for you. And it's nice. Yeah. Yeah. And to me, that's the idea that Mm -hmm. we are in this world of overabundance. And so if we don't figure out a way to create our own suffering, like going to the gym every day, getting in cold water therapy, you know, then we're, yeah, we're going to be victim to a narrative that's run by capitalist society. Right. And and the cool thing is that the science suggests that that's not just a philosophical argument, because what we found out through the science of hormesis uh, is that if we intentionally do things that are painful or noxious or aversive, we actually cause our body to upregulate feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine. So for example, uh, experiments show that if you immerse yourself in an ice cold water bath for an hour, dopamine levels initially are not do not rise in response to that because it's it hurts right yeah. but over the latter half of the dopamine of the of the ice cold water bath dopamine levels uh, rise you know some 400% above baseline and then here's the exciting part they stay elevated for hours afterwards before going back down to baseline levels without ever going into that dopamine deficit state the same thing happens with exercise we see a huge increase in uh, feel-good neurotransmitters like norepinephrine, serotonin, dopamine with exercise in the latter half. But again, even after we stop running or biking or swimming, uh, you know, we get that, that feel-good high afterwards without ever going into that dopamine deficit state. So by paying for our dopamine up front, by doing things that are hard, we manage to get to that place where we can feel good for a while without getting the cravings that come with using intoxicants get us caught up in that vortex of constant craving and feeling progressively worse over time. Yeah. I've got a question about the conversation between moderators and abstainers. I have this conversation a lot in like emotional eating, sugar addiction kind of space because a lot of people really, really want to be moderators because yeah. they, they don't want to break up with their drug of choice or the food yeah. you know, permanently. And that idea is terrifying in itself and even instigates further binging because of the fear of loss and the possible yeah. grief of mm-hmm. not having that pleasure, yeah. you know, pleasurable experience in their life. What's the data show on the idea of abstainers and moderators and people that can develop a new relationship with their drug of choice versus people that every time they try to just dip their toes in the water a little Mm -hmm. bit, they end up diving to the bottom? (laughs) So there are data for this on alcohol and alcohol is very close to food and sugar actually because they're both uh, intermediated through our sort of appetitive caloric system, calories and alcohol as well. It's It's a type of sugar in fact. So, and what the data show is that, you know, it used to be thought that, you know, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic, you could never drink again. But there are emerging data showing that 
with a period of abstinence of at least one month, that some people who have met criteria for an alcohol addiction can actually go back to drinking alcohol in moderation with an enormous amount of effort. But it's probably those individuals who have had milder forms of alcohol addiction and who also are willing to just invest an enormous amount of effort. So when we work with people clinically, we, and who say they want to moderate, we say, okay, great. You know, we'll work with you toward that goal. And we do, but it has to start with this period of abstinence because the abstinence allows us to reset reward pathways such that we have a much better chance starting out from homeostasis of actually being successful than if we're just constantly battling those gremlins who are kind of replicating on the pain side of the balance. So, and I think the moderation discussion is an important one, especially in this day and age where more and more people are struggling with substances that they can't abstain from, right? Like food and digital devices, digital content. You know, we all have to eat. We all have to interact with this technology. So I think conceptualizing how, what that's going to look like is really important. Now, having said all of that, I think Many, many people deprive themselves of the opportunity to be truly free of the pain of their addiction by constantly seeking moderation instead of just reframing abstinence as not something I'm depriving myself of, but actually something that I can give to myself as an enormous gift, which is the freedom from the craving cycle. Because once people actually get out of that craving cycle, it's easier to abstain, right? It gets easier. Um, But also, like, people feel better. You know, they feel better about themselves. They actually feel psychiatrically less depressed, less anxious, less irritable. And so I think on the one hand, you know, acknowledging the grief and the loss and I'm not like other people and I wish I were and all that's totally true. But on the other hand, I think this reframe of saying, you know, you're giving yourself a huge gift by committing to long-term abstinence because then you'll, then you'll truly be free of this thing that's got you, you know, ensnared. And when it comes to food, you know, that looks different for different people and you know much more than I do about this, but I would think that would look like things like giving up processed food or giving up high sugar food or whatever that person's particular thing is it's hard in this day and age because like our food supply has been drugified. I mean, it's hard to even find a slice of bread that doesn't have sugar in it. So it's not easy. It takes a big commitment. But um, I think for, for people with severe addictive tendencies to food, it can really make their lives better to just commit to abstinence. I'm curious in that to abstinence and that beginning phase of, uh, and you sort of said, you know, with an enormous amount of effort, What is needed in order to make the willpower strong enough? Is it just a genuinely deep desire to be different or for your life to be different? Because there's so many stories of people trying and Mm. that willpower running out because they're tired because the kids kept them up and work's stressful and all of the things that weaken that willpower mechanism. Yeah. I mean, yeah, willpower is, you know, it's not an infinite resource. Like, right, if we just rely on our willpower, we're probably, most of us, not going to be successful, especially when it comes to food because it's just everywhere and we're constantly being asked to, you know, imbibe, which is why it's so important to have, you know, what I call these self-binding strategies. 
um, and getting back to, you know, the, who you hang out with, right. To constantly renew our motivation and renew our willpower. We really have to surround ourselves with other people who are committed to that goal, reminding us of why it's an important thing that we value and we want to do and why we don't want to go back to the way we were before, but also other self-finding strategies where we don't have our drug of choice easily accessible in our homes or on our phones or in our cars or whatever it is so that we create both literal and metacognitive barriers between ourselves and our drug of choice so that we can press the pause button between desire and consumption. And again, thereby a little bit like trick cars, you know, how like when you press on the brakes, it actually recharges the battery. Mm-hmm. So I think something similar happens to us, you know, uh, neurologically. If we can just press on the brakes a little bit between wanting uh, our drug of choice and actually ingesting it, we're actually recharging the battery and giving ourselves more energy to, in fact, uh, accelerate in the direction where we really want to go. Do you think along this journey, people need to replace that pleasure-seeking experience with healthy alternatives? Or is it about totally cutting off that dopamine supply altogether rather than substituting one thing for the other? It's really both. Yeah, We really have to make the commitment to abstinence or you know, extreme moderation, whatever we decided moderation after at least four weeks of abstinence. So that really has to start there. That's bad news for people. Like they don't want to hear that. People always, well, what if I just replace my one drug of choice with another drug of choice or something else? Patients will say, well, sure, I'll stop taking, you know, this drug for anxiety if you just give me something else for my anxiety. And that's where I have to come and say, well, you know, it doesn't work like that. Like there's no free lunch. And for you to get off this anti-anxiety med, you're going to have to go through some considerable, you know, anxiety uh, as part of the withdrawal, but it's time limited. Now, having said that, it's not just about that, although it starts with that. It's also about figuring out what we value, what we want to do in our lives, what's meaningful to us, and then really having a lot of approach behavior toward those types of things. So not necessarily... So, you know, not replacing just one pleasurable activity with another, because then we're at risk for cross addiction, uh, you know, getting addicted to the, the other thing that's now pleasurable, but really kind of doing, trying to do things that are, that are rewarding, but in a kind of a slower, more deeply meaningful way. With that point that you made about coming off anxiety means you're going to have to experience the heaviness of actual anxiety. Yeah. Do you think in 2023 that we have, one, become adverse to experiencing negative emotion and and hence the dopamine-seeking behavior is get away from the uncomfortable thing. Is it that and or that we also, in this personal development sort of era that we're in, because everybody has access to social media where we can follow, you know, the likes of Tony Robbins and all of these people that are inviting us to to level up, that we have become, uh, we're no longer literate in managing negative emotional experiences. And so because we can't language them, we haven't been taught to sit with them, that it's simply get away from it as fast as possible. And maybe in the past, we were a little more literate, or maybe we just gave a little less weight or power to those feelings. I think there's been a huge cultural sea change in which we are, we now have many, many tropes that essentially tell us that we should run from pain, that we should be afraid of it. That pain begets future pain, um, in addition to being painful in the moment. That pain is dangerous. That pain is a sign of a mental illness or a physical illness, which is very, very different from 
even, you know, 100, 200 years ago. For example, in the mid-1800s, when general anesthesia was first invented, leading surgeons of the day actually declined to use it because they believed that it was good for their for patients to experience some degree of pain. You know, this idea that um, pain during the operative procedure could actually boost the immune system, boost the cardiovascular response, etc. Also, as well as, you know, this millennia-old uh, spiritual idea that, you know, suffering comes you know, spiritual enlightenment. These are, these are notions that we have essentially in, you know, 21st century United States anyway, uh, maybe, uh, you know, it's the same for you all. Uh, we've essentially thrown that out the window. Uh, and now we're, we're spending a lot of time uh, trying not to feel pain. But the irony is that we're in more pain than ever before. Yeah. Well, and I think as well, there's sort of that big shift of, you know, wellness gurus and mindset gurus right. that are running us away from that. But I would also say that now, and the, the sort of the main man to mention, I think in this space is David Goggins, right? Right. Is that there's, yeah. there's that kind of comeback in the other direction, yeah. which is like, seek your ultimate suffering, right. you know, like look for the pain, push through the pain. Right. And so there is that sort of movement or that, mm-hmm. you know, response to that movement of being like, yeah, the only way to get yourself together is to do, you know, pick up the heaviest burden that you can and move forward. Yeah. And he's such a credible source because that's how he turned his life around. Right. So yeah. when you, you see that, you're like, wow, okay, well, if he do if he did it, maybe I can do it too. In fact, somebody told me anecdotally that, um, one of the main inspirations in the United States for for joining the military, which is voluntary, is actually David Goggins. That you know, because right. that's part of, I guess, I gather how he turned his life around. Which I think is just it's just interesting how these certain models kind of come to the fore at certain points in human history, and and people get excited about it. And I think people are excited about this model, precisely because we're just living. We're such these ridiculously comfortable and indulgent lives and yet we're no happier so people are really they're more and more skeptical of you know the happiness train yeah totally well i mean and i mean second to goggins we've got wim hof cold and ice therapy and i think joe rogan has made like brazilian jiu-jitsu and mixed martial arts you know really popular is the answer for all of us, maybe in varying degrees, to go and find our struggle, to get into the gym, to get into ice baths, to find a sport that maybe has a degree of aggression or violence in order to manufacture that experience? I mean, I do think that we are living such disembodied lives um, and we're, we're in such a dopamine overloaded world that I actually think we have reached the need for a new form of asceticism where we have to intentionally seek out and invite pain into our lives. I'm not talking about self-cutting, obviously, um, but you know, healthy, adaptive, right-sized pain, I think is really important. And you know, if you look back to this pleasure-pain balance, it turns out that the gremlins are agnostic to whatever the initial stimulus is. When we press on the pleasure side with intoxicants or stimulants or you know, even milder pleasures. Uh, they hop on the pain side. But if we intentionally seek out and invite in the right size pain, those gremlins will go over to the pleasure side. And again, we will get our dopamine indirectly. Now, there are a lot of caveats to this because people can get addicted to pain, right? They can press too hard and too fast on on the pain side and actually physically injure themselves, or they can become too reliant on that as a coping mechanism. 
and get addicted to exercise or even ice cold. I've had a patient who was edging toward getting addicted to ice cold water baths, kept upping the ante with more and more elaborate forms of colder and colder water. Um, I mean, you name it, everything now has become more reinforcing, more accessible, more potent, more novel, essentially more drugified. So it's now possible to get get addicted to even things that we think of as adaptive and healthy, like reading or playing chess or other people, right? You know, we've ta- social media has taken human connection and, and drugified it. So it's it's really easy to get addicted to either side of that balance now. But even so, having said that, I think the majority of folks, you know, living in wealthy nations today are struggling with overly sedentary lives, inactivity, and really disembodied experiences. So I do think we need to, with intention, you know, physically challenging stuff as a, as a place to start. But the other mistake that people make is this kind of work hard, play hard mentality where it's like, okay, well, I'm going to force myself to go to this extreme of some painful activity. And then instead of experiencing the natural reward from not doing that activity anymore, they say, well, now I'm going to reward myself by going out drinking or smoking pot or binge eating or gambling or shopping. And then you get this kind of like incredible, you know, seesaw back and forth, which is not healthy either and a huge stressor on our system because every time we have to do the work to restore homeostasis, that then kicks off our um, endogenous adrenaline or stress hormones. So that's definitionally what stress is. So, you know, pressing really hard, really fast on either side um, and then trying to compensate in the other direction is not good either. That makes me think of people that might be classified as workaholics. Right. Yeah, that are like so attached to the overworking, if you like, or maybe it's not overworking for them. In that instance, when it does have positive outcomes in regards to, you know, being rewarded for your in your career or financially, how do you how do you balance that pleasure pain balance back out without playing hard? Yeah. I mean it's it it really shows how how much addiction is a biopsychosocial disease and there are certain types of rewards that we think of as addictions and others like work that we socially celebrate. But you're absolutely right. I mean, work has now become drugified too. First of all, it's more accessible. We can do it from almost anywhere 24-7. So there's no natural stopping point for work anymore. Social media has meant that, you know, fame and money and bonuses and stock options, all of that now has become part of the work landscape for a bunch of people, which means that work is more reinforcing. So yeah, super easy to get addicted to work now. And and it is pleasurable, right? You get in that flow state, it feels really good. And you're making a lot of money. And then everyone tells you how great you are. Really hard to even think of that as something that's addictive. But of course, you know, what? how do we define addiction? The continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. So, and work can definitely cause harm to self and or others. It can interfere with our, you know, relationships such that we're not investing in them anymore. It can interfere with our health. We're not taking care of our bodies. Um, It can interfere, you know, with our minds, uh, staying up too late, who knows, using stimulants, uh, you know, to make sure we can do that. So, yeah, I think we really need to be very thoughtful on our relationship with work as well. Yeah, it's so easy to not go to the gym or not do a workout because you're just in the zone with your work or That's right. 
Yeah, just be like, oh, tomorrow. And then two weeks later. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yep. But Anna, thank you so much for being on the podcast and, and sharing your time with me. I'm really appreciative. And I know that everybody listening is going to enjoy everything you've got to say. And for anybody watching or listening, Dopamine Nation is the book. Get your hands on it. Anna, where can everybody find you on the internet? Where are we sending people? So for obvious reasons, I'm not on social media, but I think the best place to find me is this podcast. And of course, reading my book, which is available wherever books are sold and also available on Audible. I love that. I, I'm working towards not being on any social media. It's uh, great. It's, it's great. Yes. Let me tell you. Yes. Well, I, I feel like in my, my little business journey, social media was really important in the beginning to get yeah. off the ground. And now it's sort of big enough that I can not really rely on that. I can start edging away. <laughs> yeah. Good for you. Thank you. And before we wrap up, what is one piece of health information that you wish more people listening knew about? I guess I just wish more people realize that, you know, life is hard and that's okay. And it's, you know, I, people have a right to be unhappy and that you don't have to pathologize that all the, all the time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. And yeah, you're amazing. Everybody needs to check you out. All of your links will be down in the show notes below. So we've got everything everybody needs down there. Get your hands on the book. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or family member that you feel needs to hear this conversation. And in the meantime, Anna, we'll catch you on the next episode. Sounds great. So nice to meet you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.